Good evening, everyone there. Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of the Right Way Podcast program tonight, or alternatively this morning or whatever time you're listening to this on. Uh, Today, or this evening, my time, I'm gonna be speaking to a debut novelist, Sally Bradfield, regarding her debut novel, Not Quite 30 Love. Now, 30 Love, as you could probably pick up from that title there, uh, as a reference to tennis, This story is most certainly centered around the world of professional tennis. Uh, All the tournaments that you care to name or think of feature within this. Uh, Obviously, Sally Bradfield has dedicated a large portion of her life to uh, professional tennis. She was the communications manager for the WTA, the Women's Tennis Association, uh, that's also featured within the story. And I really got the the impression throughout reading this story that um, that tennis is a great passion and uh, yeah, lifelong passion for Sally. So I'm really excited to talk to her about uh, Not Quite 30 Love. Uh, so the story centers around 28 year old Katie Cook, who a uh, similar sort of position in many respects to Sally and what, what she did for her career. So it kind of uh, centers around or follows the back, backstage as it were, the uh, of the glitzy and glamorous life or culture and society of professional tennis. And as we'll find out from our conversation and as the story progresses of Not Quite Ferny Love, uh, there is a far less glitzy and glamorous side to professional tennis that's propping up that. So I wanted to talk to Sally about that. So please all give a big digital round of applause to Sally Bradfield talking to me about her debut self-published novel, Not Quite Ferty Love. Sally Bradfield, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program this evening. How are you going? Oh, I'm fantastic. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, not here. Here, I suppose, where I am, but digitally where you are. Well, we can see each other. That's all that matters. Yes, yeah? absolutely. Now, is, so, so is it bitterly cold where you are right now? It's pretty cold. It was, funnily enough, the first day of winter, it was colder yesterday, but um, uh, I had uh, I was down in Sydney on Sunday with some friends and they were telling me how cold it was and I just looked at them like, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, yeah, no way. I could so, have put a bikini on if I had been that way inclined. It was that warm. <laughs> all right. Look, awesome. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. So let's get stuck into the nitty-gritty. I did some research on you after I read the book. I've got to tell you first my process of how I read the book. So okay. I read it first, cover to cover. I didn't look at the back. I, I suspected with my brilliant powers of deduction that it was going to be related to tennis in some way, going by the 30 love kind of uh, bit of the title. But yeah. um, I didn't, I, I, so I, I wasn't 100% sure about what I was going to be walking into and I was really excited about that. And then I looked you up and I realised that you were communications manager for WTA for a long time. So mm-hmm. in a very roundabout way, that's bringing me to my first question is where did the idea for Not Quite 30 Love come from? I suppose it was um, a genesis of, genesis of a multiple of ideas like most things are. I had, mm. when I left tennis, um, I started teaching, started teaching marketing because my background's obviously marketing in tennis and, uh, and communications in tennis. And I had this idea for a story about someone who did the job I did on the tour, but I didn't want it to be my life story. I wanted it to be just use that framework and that framework of reference. But I really kind of didn't know how to make it interesting and how to make it more than just like she took a player's to press, she did this, she did that, 
how to make a real story out of it. So I actually did a master's in creative writing at UTS. And as part of my master's, I wrote, I suppose, chapters or sort of short story bits and pieces that, that helped me get into um, Katie Cook, who's the main character in the story, get into her world um, that wasn't Sally Bradfield's world. So it sort of happened from there. And I wrote um, several drafts, as you do, you know, you're right, you know, um, uh, several means 100 or <laughs> something dreadful like that. And I got to a point about, I suppose, about four years ago where I had written the whole thing and it was set around the time I was really in my heyday working in the, which is around 2000, 2001. And I went to a, um, a publisher's sort of uh, pitch session and they said, we love the idea, we love the concept, it's going to be set now. I'm like, oh, God, <laughs> that's a massive rewrite. But it was the best thing about it was it forced me to make it so different and it forced, uh, you've read the book so you know, mm -hmm. it, starts with a, it starts with a social media crisis and it forced that sort of party in it and it also forced her even further away from my story, which helped her become so different from me and such a different um, world. The world I worked in, yeah, sure, but it, it just sort of forced her into her own self a lot more. Um, so it was actually the best piece of advice I ever got, even though I hated it at the time. Um, and, it, it, yeah, it, it created an even bigger um, uh, gap between her and me, which was really, really important for the book to, you know, for the story to become more real. It's interesting, I, I, like the, the the advice itself. Like, I can't wrap my head around that. I mean, like, obviously, this is a person that you're talking to as a real pundit of publishing. So, like, they, they, you know, and like you said, I mean, it was really invaluable advice. I'm just, I'm wondering why, because, like, I mean, obviously, she it allowed was you. To... The person who said it, I think that was all it was. I think if I'd been talking to someone older, perhaps they would have said because it, it depends on your your perspective, I suppose. If you're, mm. uh, I think she thought it was limiting my age range to people who were um, working 20 years ago rather than, and, and more rather than people who are working now, mm. um, you know, in, and social media is, you know, let's face it, it is everything. Mm. Mm. <laughs> There's no escaping it. And it sort of, she, I think she felt like I was cutting off, you know, a third of the market um, by cutting out anyone who hadn't, you know, who didn't understand a world without social media. And, and most people who work, you know, in their beginning and starting jobs now in their 20s, teens and 20s, don't, don't have a clue what a world could possibly be like without social media. Um, more sad for them, really, as much as I do love aspects of it. You know, I wouldn't want to be a teenager in it now. I'm with you as well. Talk, talk, a, little, talk a little bit, Sally, because you, you have mentioned the social media aspect, and I mean, like, I can totally get behind... Um, how you've done that because it doesn't feel tacked on. I mean, it's, it's pretty much, you know, the foundation of Katie's job. Um, yeah. And, and, and yeah, so you just, without revealing too much or, cause it's not, there's not just the, the first sort of, uh, which will probably, probably one of the more horrific um, sort of uh, PR disasters that happens via the, you know, the content of social media. But um, how did that, how did that sort of, did, did you yourself study some cases that sort of embellished or allowed you to inform, informed your um, inclusion of the social media component? Had you always not? Oh, social media, it's at, at TAFE and at university. Mm. So um, I suppose I'm, I'm continuously um, reading and updating myself. And I also have a small business in tennis and stuff. So we, we do use social media all the time. And I was working through the when social media was starting out, and we did obviously have the internet. I mean, I wasn't working 
in the 50s. So uh, it was just that we weren't as full-blown, like, um, uh, you know, the, the players weren't as uh, full-blown on their social media as, as they are now. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it, it was really important to me that it wasn't tacked on because mm. my initial thought was, can I just change 2000 to 2020 everywhere and just every now and then stick a tweet in? Because I just, the thought of rewriting it was just so horrendous. Mm. Every writer knows mm. that, that horrible feeling of like, oh, God, no, please. Um, and then I fully committed to completely rewriting it. And that meant, uh, you know, as I said, resetting it and, and, and looking at the, the core essence of what it is to be a worker now in media, and uh, you know how how um, totally involving social media is mm. in, that, in that world now. There's no escaping it for a minute. Mm. Twenty-four hour news cycle. Tell me, because the thing I also liked about it, and this is, I mind you, this is kind of um, still before I knew that. In some respects, prior to you know doing the rewrite and distancing yourself and making Katie her own unique person, is um, how much the the Katie character I, I liked. The fact, okay, so this, again, this is, I gave a long-winded introduction about how, you know, I thought it might go or how I read it. So originally when I, when I first, the outset, I was like, oh man, is this going to be similar in some regards to an underrated gem of a love story, Wimbledon, uh, with Paul Bettany and Kirsten Dunst. And I was like, oh, yeah. you know, that's, that just reminds me actually, I'm still, still need a rewatch of that. But I thought, okay, well, it's going to be about these two tennis stars. And it wasn't. You kind of like opted, and I mean, like, I understand now, like, you know, informed by your own career and stuff. But I liked that it was kind of like you've opted for someone that works the kind of the man behind the curtain, the woman behind the curtain of of the you know the professional circuit that you otherwise would never see. You wouldn't see because they're not you know like that at the front row center of the glitz and glamour, the more prestigious yeah. side there. So tell me a little bit about that because was that the inspiration for you? Because obviously you've mentioned about how Katie, yeah, in some respects was similar, but then you've gone kind of to make sure that she was different from you in that regard. Did you always think that it was going to be linked in that sort of uh, person working behind the shadows of the social yeah, media? Yes, so it was stuff? always intended to be someone working in the job I worked in. That was mm. always the, the genesis of the book. Mm. Um, I wanted to show um, the players from the inside out and I didn't want it to just be another player talking head. Um, so I just wanted that different angle of it that, you know, that there's this, I mean, before I got into tennis, I didn't understand that the huge amount of people working behind the scenes, doing all of these different jobs. And, and I wouldn't have, didn't understand at all that there was a, a, a this big machine going on behind the players. Um, and that was what I wanted to show that there are lots of people out there that, and, and that you can see things a little bit more clearly when you're inside as well, rather than, um, rather than, you know, an, a, a bird's eye view or rather than trying to pretend you're a player. Um, so, and that's what I wanted to do. So it was always, she was always, Katie Cook was always going to be a communications manager. Um, that it just, that it changed, you know, she got morphed when we got more social um, and she became like the first draft of the book. I think you could have almost substituted my name for hers. <laughs> And in fact, if I ever want to write my autobiography, I'm fairly sure a large chunk of it's already been written. <laughs> it's sad as that is, but I have heard that's not an uncommon thing with writers on their debut novels. That there's a lot of a lot of similarity between something they've experienced or and you know what they've written. So it's almost just purging that in a sense before you can get on with the extraction. Um, so yeah, when I want to go back and write my autobiography, I'm pretty sure 
there's a there's a good a good base for it in draft number one, sad as it is. Um, which doesn't bother me now because I didn't release that. That's not mm. what was that's not what came out, and that was really um, that was important to me as well. And I think um, you, you know it is it's a it's a really weird world. It's it's and I'm sure other sports. I know other sports are a bit like it, but the tennis world is is quite unique in the sense that it's very very global. Obviously, mm. so many countries. Um, rich, poor, and you know, first world, third world. It, it goes to a lot of countries. People think it's only a wealthy sport, but there's a lot of people playing it in not very great circumstances as well. And that there are tournaments at the lower levels, obviously not the Wimbledon's and the Roland Garrises, down in you know places where you wouldn't expect to be going to tournaments. We used to go to those places, and the players go to those places, and you know they have to work their way up through the um, up through the ladder, just like any other sport. But it is very global, and it is a bit like a travelling circus you sort of go from place to place to place and it's very insular as, as well um you tend to you know you could have weeks and weeks on the road and not realize what's going on outside of like a new president could be elected somewhere and you're like huh? did that happen I, didn't, oh, I missed that i was only i could tell you who won in the finals last week but <laughs> i don't know it was a new president it can get very you know very insular and very myopic when you're focusing on what you've got to do because it, it is uh, very long hours and very intense and very localised where, wherever you are at that point. So, um, yeah, but it's, it's an interesting world to live in. So that's what I wanted people to see as well. There's a lot you mentioned there. I mean, first of all, um, I like that they used the term and it was kind of one that I had running through my head throughout reading. It was like a, it was like a big machine. And it's mm-hmm. the big big machine with all the connotations of that. So the grandeur, the monstrosity of that, but also, you know, sort of the negative aspects as well. And it's interesting because I wanted you to maybe talk a little bit about because it's not um, you haven't just kept it a story as all glitz and glamour far from it. I think you showed the the ugliness that kind of kind of rise naturally from from this sort of um, mm-hmm. uh, god kind of god worship of certain athletes as well as yep. and again this kind of touches on harkens back to what we were talking about with social media as well. Now I want to know and obviously you mentioned about how like it was somewhat autobiographical quite a lot <laughs> earlier, but I wanted to know from the outset when you were going in. Because obviously this is a, I, I get it, Sally. Like this is this is your passion. This is your your love. Like every every word, every page, it's, it smacks of it. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's very passionate. So then I was wondering in your head when you were writing it, when you were writing the more kind of ugly aspects or the more sort of pernicious things that can arise from such a titan of an industry with you know billions of dollars attached to it and sort of these star athletes. Was there any apprehension on your part for that? Were you worried about that? Did was there anything that you that you wanted to sanitize or admit or Knowing you and you have a million trillion crazy stories that happen in real life, was that something you were kind of also kept at the forefront of your mind or you were just like, no, write it all, what's and all, and that's the story I want to write? I wanted to write what I thought was a realistic, fictional story about life on the tour. So I wanted it to be based in a world that existed and I wanted the stories and things that happened in it to be realistic in in that real world that I know. Mm. I didn't want to write... Um, a thinly veiled uh, story about other players that have really happened. So the incidents, the uh, things that go wrong, the negatives and, and, and as you said, the disasters are fictional disasters. Mm-hmm. But they are also the sort of things that could, let's face it, realistically happen in that world. So that's what I wanted to do. In terms of I never wanted to write an expose of tennis. That's not what I love tennis. I'm passionate about tennis. I'm passionate about the sport. Um, I've worked for both the men's and the women's tour and I believe wholeheartedly in the, in the beauty of, of the tour. But nothing beautiful doesn't have ugly. 
Mm. Um, so I didn't want to write a story that didn't have any ugly in it. I think that's just garbage. And I, well, I suppose it's not even, you can write fairy tales and stuff, but you know, if you're going to write a, a story about something then I would have been, if I'd read it, I would have been very disappointed if it had been just, that, you know, sort of stuff. I mean, I have read books on tennis where it was clearly written by someone who had not worked in tennis at mm. all or not been surrounded by tennis. I know there's some people who've written books um, that have written uh, a book when and, and, and the first pages of it, and I'm not going to talk about the particular book, were about how the um, attendants at Wimbledon are checking their underpants to check if they're white. And that just doesn't happen. And I thought it was really insulting and really patronising, and it just doesn't happen. They don't check your underpants at Wimbledon to check they're white. Yes, they check logo sizes, and, yes, you're supposed to wear predominantly white, but they're not talking about your underwear. They're talking about your outerwear. Um, and, you know, it, some of that sort of stuff really annoyed me, and I remember mm. reading that years ago and thinking, no, 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 no. Oh, if I'm going to write things that are going to happen, they're going to be things that would happen, but I didn't want to write about someone's life. So it's not... Player X's real undercover story. It's my fictional thoughts about things that could realistically happen on the tour, but they haven't. Mm. Yeah, I can totally see what you're talking about there in terms of um, reading a book where you're like, this person has no idea about it. It's like this empirical lived experience. Yeah, and that shines through with with your with your story there because it just it's it's clear that you that you've lived it and experienced this and it's sort of come through like that. We've mentioned as well. Um so we've talked about the warts and all and including that and how that, that how you went about writing that and that's the story that you wanted to write. What about and I mean they're only ever sort of they're never like really like have speaking roles as it were. But I mean there's there's real life um you know top seed players as well yep. and I wondered and again you're not you're not depicting them in an untrue or negative light and they're not really like they're, they're kind of in the background as it were for the you know the, the pawns of the actual fictitious characters to kind of revolve yep. through but was that something also that you were like oh you know god if I include this person even though they're just mentioned are they gonna you know cause trouble for me cause strife or is that again something that you're like well no like I've already got this worked out as to how it's going to go I certainly thought about that originally I had a couple of um characters real characters in there playing a real part and a couple of them I I tried to clear with the the agents of the players Mm -hmm. and a couple of them didn't want to be in the book um just because they, it wasn't, they actually quite liked what I'd written, but they were just like, oh, no, what if I get some negative? And I'm like, okay, mm. fine, I'll make it a completely fictional player. It was never their real story anyway. It was just to give a real player's name in there. So, yes, I did have, like, I think I've had, I had Serena in there. I mentioned so-and-so playing Serena and whatever, but they didn't really do anything um, that other than play a match or walk past them or say hello or something like that. So I was conscious of in my research, whatever, there wasn't any defamatory thing that any real player did. It was just to give some context and some sense of, you know, this is the world that you know, the reader might know, you know, a couple of these names. It might help you, you know, get your brain around these other fictional characters who were doing stuff in the book being a little bit more real to you if if they're walking past Serena or playing Serena or playing so-and-so, it might help, you know, just that that feeling of, of reality come through. And I, I wasn't going to make a player, real player, do anything of significance because I didn't want to get into that situation where someone could say to me, hey, I don't want to be in that. <laughs> I don't want to have that happen. So, um, yeah, and it's just, it is difficult to get permission to do something long because, um, or have someone really do something serious because they worry about, you know, 
what how it could be misinterpreted or mm. you know what a lover player say about me or whatever it might be and sometimes it's the agent rather than the player the player might yeah. never even found out that the agent said no and honestly uh, the last thing I want to do is put a real person in a situation they didn't want to be in it was supposed to be a, a book a fictional story so yeah, it wasn't yeah, it looks so true. I can see, and I, like like you mentioned as well, um, the players might not even have signed off on it or ever heard about it. But yeah, I, I can totally get that, and that kind of also touches on what we've what we've kind of delved into a little bit there of the social media sort of component as well, just how things can get misquoted and stuff. But um, it's kind of dovetails with my next question a little bit as well. Anyway, so you've lived, you've breathed this world. This was your career for a long time. You know, you know these people. You obviously you speak from your authority and that you've you've experienced all of this. What, what was it that you felt that you had to get right with the story, be it the, the culture that you wanted to capture, the, you know, the, the people, the players, the, the vibe? What, what, what was it that you yourself from the outset felt that you, that you really wanted to make sure that you made it as authentic, authentic as possible? Well, I wanted to make sure that Katie's, because I knew that my colleagues past and present who did the job that Katie does and I did, um, read it and didn't go, oh, come on, Sally, that's not what we do. That was really important to me. I wanted it to be that, and, and subsequently every single one of them have said to me, ah, thank God someone talked about what we finally do and where the fact that, you know, where the meat and the sandwich or you get caught between everybody trying to, you know, achieve everybody's goals that are all competing and all that sort of stuff. And I wanted that to come across that, you know, you're sort of, you're stuck in the middle and you're trying to make everybody's, everybody happy. I also wanted, I wanted a realistic a portrayal of what life on the tour is like as well, that sort of travelling, as I said, that travelling circus. Um, I wanted the players to come across in a realistic light. So, yes, they're not all perfect, sweet little darlings. And, no, they're not all assholes. You know, they're people and they're out there fighting their guts out to achieve something and some of them come from backgrounds where, you know, they're earning the family's living. Um, a lot of people are depending on them to win and and, and that's a lot of pressure and I wanted, I wanted that to come across. Um, and that there are lots of different people and lots of different cultures going on out there, and that I wanted that to come across as well. So they're some of the things. So much, so much to to get right. You've, <laughs> you've, you've done it, but I mean, like you've obviously you've worked on it, and you mentioned before about you know like the revisions and stuff like that. Oh. I I hear you. I know that pain that hurt me in my soul. You saying it, so like believe me, I, I'm, I'm yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about there. One of the one of the parts that I felt was i mean it was all authentic but the one that i thought was was really authentic and i kind of wanted to like mention it and i wanted to delve into it a little bit it actually is friendship is the this the enduring friendship that happens so we've got jen with the start and even marine and stuff like that basically you know when katie gets into jams most of the time for no fault of her own some of them pretty pretty well, some uh, of them are a bit her fault some of them definitely are a bit but <laughs> Even for those that she, she F's she up a bit, don't you think, Samuel? She eps up a bit. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but like, even for those that maybe okay, maybe she did kind of like cause quite a lot. The, uh, the friendship, and even across the opposite side of the world, still back in you know ye old Bondi type area. Yep. I felt like that was something as well that obviously you wanted to sort of convey was this sort of uh, this feeling of uh, pervasive sort of. N- enduring friendship and how much that can you know positively impact someone's life so talk to me a little bit about the friendships because that felt authentic as well and so it felt like something that Absolutely. you wanted to really capture yeah there, two, there were there are two as you mentioned key friendships female friendships because she's a female and she has these two really good friends one that's grown up with her and 
she's grew up in Bondi and has a partner in Bondi and, 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 you know, she talks to her friend when she's home and when she's on the road, she obviously communicates um, digitally with her, her mate and uh, her mate's also going through stuff as well and, you know, that, that push and tug. and Because I, I know I had that when I was working on that on the tour because you're away 40 weeks of the year, mm. you know, and I, I found when I lived, when I was based, initially I was based in Australia, and it was so painful to come home for a week because you'd spend two days getting over the jet lag to come home and then two days the other way. So you really, I did everything I could to avoid coming home. Mm. And that really affects your friendships because you've got to, you've got to be with people. You've got to go out and have a silly night out or you've got to just sit and watch Netflix or whatever it is with your friends, not just communicate digitally. Um, and we, as we've all learned through lockdown how hard it is to not, you know, actually be there sometimes. So that was important to show that friendship of them trying to work out a way to um, make that real. Um, Maureen is based on a very, 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 very close friend of mine who is French, who lives in London, and I actually let her name the character, Veronique Beaujardin. I will name her because she's the most wonderful person on earth and I miss her because she's in London. I can't get there. And she was a wonderful friend to me when I worked on the tour. She worked on the tour and I actually said to her, what do you want your name to be in the book? At the beginning, she was, oh, my favourite French name is Marine. And I went, that's you. So everybody knows it's her. There's no secret to it. Now, you know, she became fictionalised and obviously what happens in the book became fictionalised, but what isn't fictionalised is that she was a wonderful friend to me when I was on the tour and she had my back when I did silly things, not the same things Katie did, but silly things. And I wanted that to come across because that's how you survive when you're out in the ether by yourself in these some of these really scary situations. You've got to have someone to just go, you know, sit next to you and just go, you really stuffed up, didn't you? Okay, well, let's work out how to fix this, you know. And that's what Maureen does often and, and Jen does to a different extent because she's not working with her. But that, And that is what friends do. Friends will tell you when you've stuffed up, but they will also still be your friend for it, you know. They, they accept we're all fallible, we all stuff up. And that was important to me that Katie had that, you know, capacity to stuff up and learn and, and hopefully that comes through the book too, that learning curve that hopefully we all go through otherwise we're pretty flat <laughs> to, to live with we're still a learning curve um i think we all kind of go through that i don't think that ever kind of stops i think that's still kind of still, still they still keep going for me anyway you know yep. i'm still a bit of a goose you know semi-reformed goose but but still still <laughs> kind of like going about you know severing my goose ways but um yeah, we've talked you. about we've talked about friendship let's talk about romance romance uh -huh. romance 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 okay. with Bad boy Nikolai. Nikolai Tell me Petrov. Nikolai Petrov. So <laughs> yes, yes. Tennis is tennis is bad boy. So yes. with this he one. is totally fictional. I have to put that in. I know so many of my colleagues on the tour goes, Oh, I know it's supposed to be curious. And I'm like, no. And then someone else went, Oh, I know it's supposed to be so and so. And I'm like, no, it no, it really isn't. <laughs> But they had fun trying to make up who it was. Look, I, I, I didn't, I, I didn't think it was any, any, anyone in particular. Mind you, my, my knowledge of, of tennis is, is nowhere near as encyclopedic as your own. <laughs> but um, I, I, I never thought it was someone in particular. I thought it kind of was like you've cherry picked all the, the, yeah. the best and the worst parts of kind of the of a, of a leading man there. And I wanted you to kind of talk about how you went about writing him. Is he someone I'm getting? I'm really getting vibes that he was someone that you rewrote and rewrote and rewrote through yeah. through drafts and stuff like that. And tell me how that character came from someone who was probably 
they always start off, you know, within the the strikingly good looking a la Christian Christian Grey, and then yep. you flesh yep. the, the character out. Yeah, they they start taking on dimensions. They get wants, needs. You know, they're they're damaged. So tell me all yep. about how that how you went about that, Sally. How how'd you go? Yeah, about well, that? as you said, at first he was pretty one dimensional. It was just that paper book, a uh, paperback hero where he was incredibly mm. good looking and a foil for her to, you know, fall in love with and whatever, and I have nothing against romance novels, but I didn't want this to be a straighten of romance. I wanted this to be Katie Cook's story and romance be part of it. So he needed to become, if she was going to fall in love with him, then he had to become real. Mm. He could just be this paper book because she's not an idiot. She does some dumb stuff. We all do dumb stuff, but she's not an idiot. She's not going to fall in love over a period of time with someone who's, you know, a complete douche. Mm. Um, so he is a complete douche at some aspects and he's also not a complete douche at, at other aspects. And I wanted, again, as we talked about, to bring out that reality of a tennis player. Tennis players are human beings who in most cases have started playing sport incredibly young. Um, Petrov is, is, is Russian and, you know, basically he was sent off, um, and I won't give too much away, but he was sent off to, to another country to further his tennis when he was incredibly young, away from his family. There wasn't money for him to go home every six weeks to go and see mum and dad and the family. And so, you know, he was wrenched from um, a childhood and, you know, put into this role of trying to achieve something amazing. But what you give up for that amazing is huge, you know. Mm. And so I, I didn't... That book isn't totally about that. I actually, my next book, which I'll tell you about another time, um, is more about that. But I, I needed to be part of his arc as well, his character arc, that you understood that, you know, he had had this very, very weird childhood slash early adulthood that most of us human beings don't understand. Us And even if you think about athletes in Australia that are, um, that they're sports-based in Australia or largely in Australia, they have lots of competition in Australia like rugby or, you know, even athletics, they do have a lot of competition in their own country, whereas tennis players um, spend very little time at home, mm-hmm. very little time at home. Probably the country where they've, they've got the most competition at home would be the USA, and obviously Europe has a lot of, um, you know, much shorter distances to travel, but you're still travelling different countries, you're still leaving home, you're still, you know, you, you're not, as a child, you know, just playing sport on the weekends, you're being wrenched off to another country for six weeks or eight weeks or whatever it might be, then home again for a little bit and then off again and school on the road and all of that sort of stuff that for us normals is so unfathomable. You know, starting your, most of us think of our careers starting, you know, in our early 20s post-university if we could make a decision by then or even 18 through to, you know, 60 and we might have a couple of careers within that. We don't think of starting at like seven or eight that's when our career began mm. and we're lucky if we can get through to our early to mid thirties before we have to redo life, you know, and then we probably are going to become something associated with tennis because that's all we know. We may or may not even have gone to school in any real way. So, you know, we might, may have, and some of them have got gone to university and got degrees. I'm not saying everybody, but there's a real, you know, um, commitment that goes into becoming a professional sports and particularly something that where you are an individual sports person and you have to travel a lot they say 10,000 hours to start practice in the juniors I mean that's a lot of time on court it's a lot of time I don't I mean I felt like I might have spent 10,000 hours in drafts but that's not true <laughs> 
just felt like it. You know what I mean? Yeah, Ding, I, I a lot of hours for a kid. It's such a, yeah, look, now you put it in perspective like that, I mean, it's just such an unreal life and it kind of all harkens back to that sort of, a, you know, not I don't want to say robbing of childhood, but, you know, I mean, like it is definitely a very unusual childhood, so you don't really get to, in many respects, a lot of the time develop as naturally as you should be able to and be a kid. So, yeah, no, it can have impacts. I mean, that did, that did really, really come through with the Nikolai character as well. I just knew that he'd be, he'd, he'd be someone that's um, difficult to write and I got the impression that, you, that you've worked on him because... Yeah, he's not a Christian Grey. He's not this, not not taking down Christian Grey, I should say as well. E.L. James, if you're listening, you know, Christian Grey's a, an interesting <laughs> character as well. But um, yeah, I, I just wanted the complexity. It's, 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 it's uh, seemingly okay to, you know, make someone, you know, instantly strikingly good looking, but then to kind of give them a backstory, which is you've obviously done so, you know, kind of filling them out there with the, the kind of um, that unreal childhood provenance, then yeah, it all sort of mm. makes sense. I wanted to keep talking a little bit about the um, how you've come to, to get to this point here, Sally, because you've you mentioned about the rewriting. The books, uh, I've read somewhere, it was like it took somewhere in the region of 10 or so years to, to make. But I wanted to now talk a little bit about how you, so you, 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 you said you went to a few, like you spoke, you've spoken to publishers and you went to some events and stuff like that. Tell me how like it came to become what I've now got. I was going to say in my hands, but you could see it over there. Listeners can't, but uh, right there. How 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 do you go about? Like, what sort of journey? Because I know writing, and I know like how much of a long and arduous journey it can be. So I want to get into the nitty gritty of that. Yeah. So it probably took ten years from conception to publication, um, and 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 a lot of that time was spent walking away. Had walked away from it, like oh, I'm not going to whatever. Um, as I said, I did a masters, and that was a that took me what, two and a half years because I was working full time at the time um, and bits of it were written during that. Like I'd write a, a chapter here and it would, it would tend to be like an experience, like Katie Cook trying to get a player to press in a certain tournament and it would just be some drama that had happened. And it was writing my way into the story. You know, mm-hmm. I was writing my way into what do they say? You kill your darlings. I killed so many darlings. Um, and then that rewrite ha- that happened about three years ago, where it went from being set twenty years ago to being set now, um, was was an important pivot point uh, in in terms of the book. And then I I did something that I would love to tell people who are um, emerging aspiring authors not to do. So I had this good idea. I had a really good pitch because I'm a marketer. So the pitch bit I had no problem with. The book wasn't ready. Mm. So I pitched it to quite a few publishers and, then, and they liked the pitch. I sent the book off and they weren't hooked enough mm. because the start wasn't good enough. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't ready. And I blew, I blew up all the bridges. So that's why I had to self, I felt I had to self-publish because I writing other things, but I, I was like, oh, I really want this book to come out. And the problem is, you know, if I wait another five years and it's going to have to be rewritten again because the yeah. world can look at COVID, everything keeps changing. And I was like, I really want this to come out. And I was, um, I am denied about it. And I'm like, I decided to self-publish and, and my partner supported me on that. And I'm really happy that I did. I got a bit kind of like so many of us, um, derailed by COVID because I was on my way to Wimbledon to go and, you know, spend a lot of time with the players and promote it and all that sort of stuff and all that shut down and tennis shut down and it got, it, you know, it made it much, much harder to sell the book mm-hmm. as, a, um, as a, you know, a single entity rather than, you know, a big publishing house might have had, you know, a bit more munition to get across and get through distribution and stuff. So that was 
a difficult part of what happened from COVID. It wouldn't have happened if COVID hadn't happened. But, you know, I certainly think there's a lot of people who've had a worse experience than me. Mm. So I'm not going to be a little Miss Winger about COVID. We've all experienced something from it. So, but that was the journey. It was, I blew some bridges up by not having the book ready. So I would say to any aspiring author, get get it get your book really ready and that means having people who are not your best friends read the book um and give you real feedback and i you know i'm uh, um, many drafts into my next book and i've got significant people reading it to give me you know what i'm calling the beta test Mm -hmm. um you know what what's missing now before i pitch it and a couple of people said me i'll just go and pitch it i'm like no no no, i know i know how to pitch it that's not the problem the problem is I, i want it to be hooked in when they really get it. So that's mm. what I would say to people who are, you know, writing books or whatever, just make sure that it's the best it can be before you pitch it because these guys are getting just, I mean, we all hear about the slash cars. We all hear about how many things have been pitched to them. And there's so much luck that goes into it too, that if mm-hmm. someone else has written a book that's too similar to yours in terms of overarching concept it might not be that it's a tennis book it might just be that it's a coming of age you know they've got six coming of age sort of books or whatever it might be and they're like "Ah, no we can't publish another one of them or or whatever it is or they've just they've you know spent their budget for 2000 or whatever so there's a lot of luck that goes into it as we all know and if I hear the JK Rowling story one more time about how many times she got rejected I'll slap someone (laughs) we know she did well um (laughs) Uh, but it, it is true, you know, there's a lot of luck that goes into it and there's a lot of perseverance. But for me, I suppose I've um, been quite lucky in my career and, and things that I've done, mostly due to hard work, but also elements of success that came through it. And and I think that writing is my thing now that I have to keep plugging, plugging, and, and I'm learning that it's it's incredibly painful process, so painful. but also really rewarding once something works, you know, mm. like, oh, god that worked so yeah that's that's the the arc i suppose of it so it it was torturously good and bad (laughs) wow so much to unpack from that okay first and foremost uh point number one stands off the top of my head i don't i I strongly doubt you've burnt bridges sally i strongly (laughs) doubt it because because like i don't know if you've heard the expression hold my beer but have you heard that expression, hold my beer? Hold my oh, beer yeah, is, yeah. Is, in re- is in reference to when someone's saying that they've done something and hold my beer means like if you think you've done that that bad, then I've done that a million trillion times worse. So I've been around the ring as well. So I know just, yeah, uh, I, I, I'd like to think that I haven't any bridges, but I probably probably have maybe maybe singed them a little bit. Maybe they're, you know, they're still getting <laughs> refurbished a little bit. Um, the really good advice that you gave there as well about getting the manuscript, making sure it's, um, it's really good. I don't actually hear that that often. And it is a really, really good piece of advice because it is, it is true. I mean, like a lot of the people you see, you see, you see literary agents talking in writers' festivals and stuff like that about, you know, don't just write the end first draft and send it to me because that, you know, oh, it could be something, there could be a kernel or something that's so good, but, you know, you've got to go through what you're talking about and what I'm still going through right now, which is the most painful part of the process, but the most important, which is, you know, editing again and again and again, 10 times, doesn't look anything like, you know, the first draft you write. They always say that the first draft is always a piece of shit. I think there was, I don't know if it, was, it wasn't Hemingway. It was someone. They said that the first, first draft is always a piece of shit because then you obviously you're going to go back. And uh, it's also the first draft is you telling yourself the story. I liked also the point that you mentioned there too. Yeah. 
you said about how you were writing stuff and you were like, I was writing my way into the story, which is actually like a writer, a writer will get that by the way that you, you worded that, you know, like it's, it's, it's you determining where the story starts and how you're kind of getting into the characters and stuff. Tell me a little bit, but a little bit more. I must admit that I'm really, really interested in the self-publishing route because I think that it's not what it was 10, 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, I was really maligned. Like you, you just, people wouldn't do it um, yep. because, because it would just be, Back then, in that sort of antiquated um, time frame and context, it would be like if you then had written something um, and had it self-published, publishers, the literary world generally would be like, well, I'm not going to touch it. Like, you, you've done that. Whereas now, because obviously with the advent of the internet or the popularity of that, it's allowing for a lot more titles to come out. There was something, I think like Amazon has something like 100,000 uh, ebooks a year and stuff like that. But the actual physical copy, the, the printing out, you know, the self-publishing route, has become much more, not just in vogue, but it's become much more of a normal sort of way in which you're getting your work out there. So how did you go about doing that? Because I, I, I must admit, I'm, I'm, I'm a layman about it. How did you, and did, did you, you, you thanked um, a few people for writing New South Wales. Is that, do they point you in the right direction? How'd that go? I did a course through writing New South Wales and it was how to self-publish a novel. And it was Joel Newm and it's go on. They do it, they're doing it again this year. Um, and uh, writing New South Wales, as you said, and it was really good because they basically helped me do it. Like they got the ebook up for you. They, I mean, you had to do all the work, but they said, okay, right, now you have to create a digital cover and a hard cover and we'll put you with, we all got allocated designers and we had, to, we had to learn how to brief the designer. So we had to go through all of that. We had to go through the digital editing process. We had to learn how to fix up our um Word file, we use Word files, as most people. Um, then we had to work out how to get all the heading and the titles right so that the person who was going to digitise it could do that. So you had to learn all of that stuff and then you had to learn what platforms we were going to use for e-publishing, what platforms we were going to use for print-on-demand, for the physical book. It was it was really quite complex and it was about over three months Mm. Um, and it was online, as I said, and we had, um, he did a, a few tutorials, which were videos, um, and then the rest of it was you uploading stuff and getting feedback. Mm. Uh, you're having, like, uh, with various people, but mostly Joel, who, who ran the thing. And he was, it was amazing. It was really, really good. I would not have known how to do it on my own. I could brilliant. do it now on my own, but I, I would not have known how to do it on my own. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, wow. Yeah, I do. I, I do. I, I know the course that you're talking about. I know um of yeah. Joel. I've definitely seen the name. I think that guy just actually got promoted recently at uh, Booktopia. So I think he's yeah, he's at Booktopia now. He used yeah. to do. I'm trying to think which big publisher he did the digital imprints for one of the big publishers for a while. But um, so he's you know he's very versed in what he's talking about. Mm. Um, and he was really generous about it too. You know, like you could tell he wanted you know, to help you get to where you wanted to get. And obviously writing New South Wales is a, a fantastic organisation. And we're, I know you go beyond New South Wales, but it's a great organisation for people who are uh, who are locally in New South Wales. And, and I, um, you know, certainly say fund them, fund them. Um, <laughs> and they just I got it. Very, they, got that, they got that funding yes. recently. That was the thing. They, that was the thing they weren't they sure if they were going to. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah trouble, yeah. I think, for a bit there. Um, yeah. I, I was one of the people, many people who wrote letters and so forth about that because I think they're a great organisation. Um, and, yet, yeah, so it really helped because it sort of it, it demystified the process. Um, and I, like you said, certainly when I was first thinking about self-publishing, I'm like, oh, it's vanity publishing. It's a bit, mm. you know, like mm. real publishing and stuff. But it, it helped me get past that 
Um, and I've certainly spoken to podcasters like yourself in writing the writing um, uh, world and also obviously in the tennis world and, and quite a few other things. And it's really like I've gotten quite a bit of reach really mm. um, not what I would have been able to go if I'd been able to go on the tour with the tennis and done what I'd wanted to do originally but um, I've had the opportunity to talk about my book a lot and really I didn't write it to make a million dollars I mean mm. you know you're not going to do that in most cases um, JK aside <laughs> you know you write something because you want to get the story out and you want you believe that there's something that that's fun to tell or great to tell or important to tell um, or all of the above to tell and that's why most of us write because we can't not write something. So we oh, sure. we have to. And just some of the, like, I just, I went to lunch with some people I hadn't seen for ages a couple of days ago. Um, and we were catching up on what we've been doing during COVID, you know, the whole, oh, what did you do other than watch Netflix? Um, and they talk about their career changes and so forth. And I said, oh, I wrote a book. And they go, oh, yeah, we read your book. It was great. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> great. <laughs> and when people say that to you, oh, we all real page turner, I love that book, or I never knew this. And you're sort of like, oh, you read my book. I mean, my sister was on the phone to her today talking about something completely different. And she goes, oh, by the way, I was at a lunch the other day. And she goes, one of the girls goes, oh, I've got your sister's book in my TVR pile. <laughs> it's just oh, little things like that. Awesome. Really, they're lovely feelings, you know, because you know, you're not looking in most cases. I mean, great if you can get... Um, thousands upon thousands of sales and that's wonderful but just those little victories um you know they make you feel really good about the fact that you did write it and that did, you know the process was worth it so that's true that's true writing is um i reckon writing is sustaining yourself on little breadcrumbs of victories that are spread very 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 thinly very thin. uh, in front in front of you. you know you're the you're that one ravenous pigeon that has like the you know, the missing stump of a leg and they're kind of rabid and they're kind of hobbling <laughs> along and they're just the pigeon that could. That's me anyway. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I would never dare say. Very that. visual, that's, that's, Thank you. Yeah, I'm visual, I'm visual storyteller. But um, yeah, that's that's what I envision. But look, what you also mentioned there as well with the tour, that'll come, that'll come, Telly, when the world stop, stop being yeah, it so will. crazy, it'll come. And it'll probably come with the next book. Yeah, and by then you're still, you know, you're going to be doing this. You're going to be speaking at other podcasters, this, that. You know, you'll probably go yeah. a whole bunch of writing events, and then you've got garnered yourself a very impressive kind of um, base of fans and stuff. And then you know, when you go there, it's just going to go 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 bonanza, go crazy. But while we're still talking I'm about it, my ego. Yeah, good, good. I'm glad that's what I'm here for. But look, while we're still talking about it, because you did mention it, you've touched on it a little bit, and I really, you know, this is the crux of the show. This is what the right way is always about. That's why I've made this program to talk about it. Is I want to know what the biggest challenge was that you yourself faced in your in your career thus far with writing and your journey that you had to overcome. So was it that you know you've touched on the COVID stuff? Like what what is it that's a standout for you that you go, well, that was a make or break moment. I really um you know I will, I'm glad that I endured there and prevailed. Um, there, there are a few, that, and that that moment when I was I was at the I was actually at the Writers Centre in in um, Roselle mm. when I had the, the the woman young publisher feedback. You know, she'd read like ten pages. It wasn't like she'd read the whole book, telling me that it needed to be um, set in the current day. Driving back from Roselle to the Blue Mountains, ringing my partner and going shit 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 <laughs> mm, mm. And, and just and driving and by the time I got home which is about 90 minutes um I already had some ideas in my head mm. 
So that was one big sort of moment of like, because the first it's probably 30 minutes I was like, I can't do this. I don't, yeah. I don't want to do this as much. And, I, and can't normally means don't want to, let's face it, um, unless it's skydiving or something unbelievably physically impossible or whatever it might be. But mostly can't means don't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, oh, God. but by the time I got to the, got home, I had, I had realigned my brain with, yeah, I can. Mm. Yeah, I will. I'm going to do this. So that was one thing. Another thing was the, um, just before my final, like starting the course of, of self-publishing when I was like 100% committed to doing it, I pulled 30,000 words out of the beginning of the book and reworked. The, and then that was, that was like, you know, the kill you darling. That was like, I don't know, being stabbed in the neck. It was like, because it, it, I'd had an editor to go through from a, from a, um, uh, she wasn't supposed to be doing a structural edit or anything like that. She was supposed to be doing a, a, not a copy edit, but a little bit broader than that, but a, basically a copy edit. And she goes, I hate this chapter. And I thought to myself, fuck you, you know, don't tell me you hate my chapter. She goes, it's gross and it'll turn people off. And um, it was a bit of, there was a bit of farting going on in it. So it wasn't, you know, like just a fart joke, but it was, it was probably not much better than a fart joke in a sense. And, and I was really adamant that that was funny. You know, and I talked to a few people and they went, yeah, it's funny. And I'm like, it doesn't sound like it's that funny the way you're saying, Mm. yeah, it's funny. And I just had this moment and I went, it's gone. Mm. And it was, and that meant a whole lot of other things had to go to make, you know, the chain of events make sense. Um, And, and you know, because you've read it, the story goes back and forward in time at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, And that sort of led to a real sort of, um, uh, reworking of that, uh, of how those chapters go backwards and forwards, and how they're identified pre-crisis, crisis, post-crisis, etc. Um, and and that was sort of a key turning point as well. The last, I suppose, big key turning point. But the thing that's the hardest bit is just going: Are people going to think this is a proper book, mm. or are they going to think it's a kind of like not a proper book? You know. Uh, and I think that's the hardest bit: that belief in yourself that that it, it is a real, it's a proper book, and it it it, it is as good as other proper books. It might not be Hemingway, um, but it's a proper book. And and I've and that feedback when you start to get that external feedback that helps. As sad as it is that you have to get external feedback to help, but you do. Mm. Um, that helped you make you feel like it, it wasn't like a complete waste of time, and it isn't garbage, and it isn't like you know not a bought one as they as we say. It's a proper book, and and it, you know, and it competes with other proper books. Um, and yes, you know, a writer's journey is never ending and you want to get better and better and like, you know, whatever for the future, but, you know, it stands for itself and it stands alone for itself and it, and it isn't, um, you know, like a, not a proper book. There you are. (laughs) Very technical language (laughs) for a writer, not a proper book. No, it's spot on, it's spot on, it's spot on. I mean, I'm with you there. Like it's definitely, yeah, all that definitely resonated with me. I felt it in my soul in terms of a lot of that sort of stuff, Sally, like we've all been there. Um, mm. yeah, like, yeah, being told, um, you know, make it contemporary. That's a huge, um, yeah, it's a, it would be a shock to the system and actually take you some time and your first instinct wouldn't actually be, um, hand on a hot ring kind of like, it just can't happen. Mm. Like, I don't know what you're talking about, but yeah, even within like what you just described then with the, the short, relatively short car ride, you're like, by the end of it, you're already coming off ideas. It's just what we do. It's the it's the thing that you just keep going and you go, Oh my God, I've put in four or five years of work into this. And, you know, now it's a, it's, it's a, it's a pretty much just a lump of, it's a word document that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Pretty much. For, for one of a, 
visual toilet paper. But look, I'm glad that you have been like you, you kept fighting with and fighting the good fight. And I'm glad that um, I got the opportunity to read it as well and have a chat with you because this is a very unique story, I must say. And the, the, the fact that you know what adds weight to it and makes it so authentic is obviously you living this 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 life that's kind of then you know informed a lot of the a lot of the world uh, that we see there within it. So. It's really good. Are you working? Last question. Are you working? You say you're working on a book now. Is that is that what you're? Yes, yes. So it's being beta read, as I said. Um, so it's a crime set within the tennis Ooh. world. So Ooh. yeah, so it's, um, yeah, it's a, a player, um, and basically he wakes up, and uh, a crime has been committed in his vicinity. Okay. What happened? So I, I can't say more than that. No, no, no. That's fine. That's too fine. Much away, but. It's it's set over these fourteen days of, of a Grand Slam, the Australian Open, and 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 the whole crime and series of things uh, happen over that fourteen day period. So it's very fast paced, and um, I think I think fun, but also very much warts and all. Okay, well, look, well, I'll, I'll turn off the record in a second. We'll we'll have a little bit of a brief and we'll <laughs> chat about that because I don't want no, t- no listeners getting too much uh, sensitive information about that. But look, <laughs> Sally, thank you so much for coming on the Right Way podcast and talking to me tonight. You're a good egg. Your uh, your story resonates with me in terms of your struggles and what you've overcome. So bless you. Thank you for coming and talking to me. Thank you so much. So everyone, that was uh, Sally Bradfield talking to me about her debut novel, Not Quite 30 Love. So huge, huge thanks to Sally Bradfield for coming on the program tonight to discuss her debut novel, Not Quite 30 Love. Uh, What I'm going to be doing now, as I always do now, which is an old hat tried and true tradition of putting the link to Sally's website on the biography slash description of this particular episode so you guys can get your hands on a copy of Not Quite 30 Love as well, as well as you should. Um, again, huge thanks to Sally for being so generous for her time coming on the program, chatting to me today, particularly shedding some light on uh, her experience at the self-publishing course offered by the Writing Yourself Wales. I thought that was a really cool little bit of a tangent we went on there. That was excellent. Uh, again, also thank you to you, dear listener, for listening to this particular episode, and I'm hoping others as well. When I say hoping, I'm kind of seeing the evidence, uh, evidential numbers there. The stats don't lie to me when it comes to people going back and listening to all the other old school podcasts or old versions and episodes as well. So huge thank you to you guys for doing that as well. Uh, Really appreciating seeing the listenership always on the increase as well. That's a good thing as well and affects me in the heart region in the most giddy and joyous way. So yeah, thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, please give a follow to this on Spotify or SoundCloud, wherever you're listening to this on. Please stay tuned for a lot more episodes coming up in the coming weeks. Uh, If you haven't already as well, I'd really, really appreciate the good vibes that you're sending through. In addition to that, if you could be so kind as to word of mouth, tell people about what I'm up to with this crazy venture of mine uh, of the Right Way podcast program. Tell your teachers, tell your pets, tell your grandparents, Tell your hairdresser, tell your greengrocer, tell your pharmacist, tell anyone on the street about the program and get them to listen to it on wherever, whatever platform they're listening to it on. And if you do that, then I do so solemnly pledge to you that I'll continue to speak to really cool writers, creatives on the program. Uh, a lot more coming up as we speak, albeit in the works. Uh, I aim for at least one, no more than two a week. And in that regard, I'm fully booked up till late August, September time with a lot of interesting uh, guests. So thank you so much for listening to me. You guys all have yourself a lovely evening or a lovely morning if you're listening to this in the morning or lovely daytime if you're not or whatever sort of time frame which you're listening to this on. Whatever it is, you have a lovely time period of that. And everyone have a lovely time now.